0: Our first reading is from the book of James. Let us listen to God's word. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I by my works will show you my faith. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Our second lesson is from the Gospel of Matthew Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And to everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Join us now for week five of our summer sermon series, Practices of Faith and Sanity. Welcome Dr. Jenkins, who shares this week's message, When Distrust Becomes Destruction the practice of faith.
1: Good morning. Trust never comes wholesale. It is a retail venture. That's at least one reason so many of us feel so frustrated these days about the lack of trust in our society. We lament the distrust demonstrated among fellow citizens. And we find ourselves wringing our hands, wanting to promote greater trust toward others, but not knowing what to do. In fact, trust always comes down to that person sitting opposite of us over a cup of coffee or a meal or in a meeting. That person who doesn't or can't or won't trust us. And the reason they withhold their trust is because... Deep down, they know, and even if they aren't aware they know this, they know that trust requires vulnerability. And vulnerability can be dangerous. You may have read the report in the Washington Post. The title of the article was, Their Neighbors Called COVID-19 a Hoax. Can These Nurses Forgive Them? The story begins by conjuring up a scene at a news conference at which the administrators of a hospital in Appalachia, on the region of Western Virginia and Eastern Tennessee, were, were honoring ICU nurses who were working long shifts, caring for their neighbors suffering from COVID-19. The reporter described one particular nurse, the pallor, her face, had acquired and repeated 12-hour shifts under those relentless hospital lights. Her eyes ringed in exhaustion and sorrow from watching so many people struggle to draw a final breath as their families grieved, unable even to touch their loved ones as they died. While the nurses and doctors were contending with a merciless viral enemy in ICU units. They were also dealing with local antagonists when their shifts ended and they left the hospital for home. Fueled by conspiracy theories on radio and television as well as disinformation and outright lies from politicians, their neighbors and family members confronted the community's own health care workers with abuse. Whenever they went into a grocery store, stopped at a fast food restaurant. Even some of their churches had become hostile places for these health care workers. Distrust can be sown with such ease that trust requires painstaking cultivation. The broadcasting of distrust is quickly accomplished. But the building of trust requires personal give-and-take-over time. That natural tendency to avoid eye contact when we walk along the sidewalk, you know what I mean, Uh, lest we make ourselves an easy mark for the huckster, may be sensible, but when misplaced, that same tendency to avert our eyes only increases the likelihood that distrust will flourish. Vulnerability and trust go together. We've had fair warning of the social ills that we're facing today. Sociologists like Robert Bella and Robert Putnam and their colleagues have been writing studies charting the degrading of our complex webs of social relationship for decades and decades. If you're old enough, you'll remember the concern generated by books like Bella's Habits of the Heart, you may remember that, subtitled Individualism and Commitment in American Life, published back in 1986. And more recently, Bob Putnam's Bowling Alone, which is subtitled, I think a little optimistically, The Collapse and Revival of American Community, published in 2001. But today, as we gather together in worship, I'm not interested in charting the problem so much as I am interested in pointing to the antidote, the antidote to distrust that we we often take for granted but that is always close at hand. Most pastors that I know love to preach on Christmas and Easter, and it's not just because of the large crowds. Mostly, we love to preach on those days because we love the clarity of the message of hope offered by the gospel. We have a pretty good idea of what to say at Christmas and Easter. By the same token, Many pastors that I've known dread preaching on that Sunday that is called Trinity Sunday. It comes every year around Pentecost time. They often try to avoid it. It's a very popular day for senior pastors to invite associate pastors or an intern to preach. And the sermons preached on that day do tend to be pretty dreadful. The most abstract and obtuse sermons of the Christian year are preached on Trinity Sundays as pastors rifle through the notes that they took back in seminary to force their hapless congregations to become familiar with the ancient ecumenical councils of the church like Nicaea, the fourth century controversies about whether the Persons of the divine trinity are homoousius, or merely homoiousios, and the schisms and hatred that divided the church as arch-heretics and heroes of orthodoxy fought it out in the labyrinths of Byzantium. They say that truth is the first casualty of war um, Wakefulness is surely the first casualty of most conversations about the Trinity and that's sad it's really sad because the whole point of the doctrine of the Trinity is to remind us that God is relational in fact That to say, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as the church has for centuries, is not to evoke a name for God. That's not God's name. We don't have God's name. It is to indicate that God is a relationship, that God's being is in communion, that God is more like a verb than a noun, and that God, as G.K. Chesterton once said, is a holy family, that God, the eternal source, Is an ever-flowing spring of love poured out to God, the other who returns that love and joy, and the love that flows back and forth is God too. And everything that exists exists because of the oversplashing, the overflowing of that love. We are created in love. We are made of love. We are designed for love, and we are never at rest until we rest in love with others. We need one another. We desire relationship with one another at a level we can't even articulate because we are made in the image of a triune God of relationship. However, however, We try to talk about God. We are trying to describe the relationship that underlies everything in existence and that is woven right into us. And that means that our natural impulse is to trust one another. When society is most fragmented, it is also most ready for healing. The reason that distrust is on the rise, ironically, is because distrust offers to some people, get ready for this, distrust offers for some people a sense of community among the distrustful. And this is where deep, loving, truth-bearing, enduring community has a tremendous opportunity. We can offer something just by being who we are in relationship in Christ that no counterfeit community of distrust can provide. We are to be to others, as the great George McLeod said, what Jesus Christ has become for us. We can offer to others. That boundless love which we have received, that forgiveness that we do not deserve, that mercy that searches to right what is wrong, but that is never going to cease until the broken and the breaker are both redeemed. And how does that happen? Well, this week we're going to get right to the practice. Let's start here. Let's start here with a true and honest word. I cannot make you trust me. Let's start here. Because if we start anywhere else, we're going to be fooling ourselves and we're just going to go nuts. The power of trust lies in the hands of others. What we can do is to be as truthful as we can be, as trustworthy as we can be, and as compassionate, and that requires two practices of faith. The first is finding and correcting the lack of truth in ourselves. And second, seeking with compassion the suffering in the heart of the other. First, we can find and correct the lack of truth in ourselves. I think you know I am a Texan. They say you can always tell a Texan, you just can't tell them much. And I'm also a Southerner. And one of the lies I once liked to tell myself was that the history of Texas was not as virulently racist and as deeply infected with white supremacy and as stained by the sin of slavery as the rest of the South. I would proudly recollect how my family's old friend, Sam Houston, grieved that Texas had left the Union and joined the Confederacy as an example of how my Southern state was different from all the rest one summer several years ago my wife and i visited charleston south carolina a state toward which i will confess to you we will just keep it among us that as a texan um, i have felt a sense of smugness south carolina's history gave rise to the famous quip south carolina is too small to be its own country and too big to be an insane asylum any time I started feeling guilty about Texas's failings, I could always say, well, at least I'm not from South Carolina, until, until that first visit to Charleston and a visit to a museum there dedicated to telling the truth about the history of slavery and white supremacy in our country. The museum, as it happens, is in a building that was a slave market. We toured the museum, and before leaving, I bought some books that provided the actual recorded testimonies of slaves held in different states, including Texas. I read them with a growing sense of disillusionment, literally disillusionment because I discovered not only the truth about the viciousness of slavery in Texas, especially in East Texas, where my family settled back in the 1830s, but also about the elaborate lengths white planters and their descendants and the state's government went to fool themselves into believing that their cruelties were somehow justified. To say that this was a painful discovery is the grossest of understatements. After getting back home to Austin, I asked one of my colleagues, a black woman, if she had a few moments for us to talk. Jackie was then our vice president for student affairs and I was the dean. We sat down and I told her about what I was reading and I then asked her, Jackie, I don't know how to pose my questions or comments yet but sometime soon would you be willing to help me think about what i am learning she said yes a couple of weeks later she was in my office again for some student related business and when we had finished with that i asked if we could continue the conversation we had started sometime back sure she said we sat down together I said, I have a question to ask you, Jackie. How can any black person ever trust any white person after the history we have shared in this country? She sat there and she looked down for a long moment. And then she looked back up. She looked right into my eyes. Now we're talking. And when she said this, for the first time maybe ever, I felt a connection of real trust with this person whom I had known for a decade or more, first as a student, then as a graduate and a minister in the community, now as a colleague, but also now as a trusted friend. Our second practice of faith, Seek with compassion the suffering in the heart of the other. I did not begin spiritual practices in order to become more kind or compassionate. I didn't. I sought spiritual practices to help me find some peace and comfort in the midst of a lot of personal pain. And frankly, I was a little annoyed when reading Christian writers like Thomas Merton and Desmond Tutu and Buddhist teachers like Sharon Salzberg and Pima Chodron who all kept nattering on and on and on about compassion. It seemed to me that opening myself to compassion would just lead to more pain. And, of course, that's true. But what I didn't reckon on is that it is only through the relationships that open us and make us most vulnerable that we also find wholeness and peace. Because, again, we were created in the image of the God of relatedness to be in relationship with each other. One day, one of these people I was reading, and I can't remember which teacher it was, suggested that whenever we find ourselves locked in disagreement with someone else, instead of focusing on the argument, we should endeavor to discover and to seek out to understand the suffering that motivates them. I'm not going to kid you, this practice is difficult because it immediately sets aside the subject matter of the disagreement and replaces it with concern for the person with whom we disagree. And I need to make this clear. This practice is not a strategy for resolving conflict or negotiating better. The goal is the practice. It is just a practice of faith and sanity it does not guarantee that we will like the person with whom we are disagreeing or their behaviors or their beliefs any better and it doesn't guarantee that they will like us any better and it certainly doesn't mean that we will be able to advance our arguments any better what it will do however is soften us make it more difficult for us to be reactive and make it more likely for us to listen and to be kind, to resist that reactivity within us, to allow us to imagine that other people are as three-dimensional in their humanity as we are and are just as subject as we are to the full range of human feelings, multitudes of of motivations, and it allows us to exercise a kind of empathetic imagination to try to feel the world from their perspective. No, I can't make you or anyone else trust me. You cannot make anyone else trust you. The only control we have is to be truthful, especially with ourselves, trustworthy with others, and vulnerable enough that trust might just grow among us. This week, I ask that we take these two practices to heart, and as we do, remember, the God in whose image all humanity is made is the God of relatedness we were created to love and to trust. One of the most bewildering comments I have ever heard is reputed to have come from Saint Benedict, the founder of the Benedictine monastic movement that became the largest in the world and Gave birth to the Cistercians, the Trappists as well. Benedict once said that the only way we can glorify God is to do something that is not in our interest. I have wrestled with that saying most of my life as a minister. Because I know I have not always lived up to it. it places us in the most vulnerable position possible in this very political world, in this very complex world. But I know that Benedict was also aware of what Saint Irenaeus of Lyon had said before him. The glory of God is a human life fully lived. There is no way for us to fully live as human beings without placing the interest of others before our own at critical moments. Uh, This is a scary business, but it is at the heart of our calling as Christians. And now may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.